Welcome to the 19th episode of our podcast, Religion and Praxis. Today, we're incredibly honored and privileged to have with us a highly distinguished historian and one of the leading authorities in the field, Professor Serhii Pluhi. Professor Pluhi holds the esteemed Mikhail Khrushchevsky Professorship of Ukrainian History at Harvard University and serves as the director of Ukrainian Research Institute, where he has been instrumental in furthering our understanding of Eastern European history. An internationally renowned expert, Professor Plachy's academic pursuits delve into the intellectual, cultural, and international history of Ukraine, of, of, of Ukraine, Eastern Europe, with his research shedding light on the myriad aspects of Ukraine's rich historical tapestry. His scholarly contributions to the field are nothing short of exceptional, as evidenced by his numerous acclaimed publications. Among his many works, Professor Plahi has penned the groundbreaking book Atoms and Ashes, A Global History of Nuclear Disasters, which offers a comprehensive exploration of nuclear catastrophes throughout history. In addition to his thought-provoking collection of essays, The Frontline, the essays on Ukraine past and present, which illuminates the complexities of Ukrainian historical trajectory. Further testaments to his expertise are his insightful books, Nuclear Folly, A History of Cuban Missile Crisis, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern uh, Front, American Airmen Behind the Soviet Alliance and the Collapse of the Grand Alliance, published by Oxford University Press, Chernobyl, The History of Nuclear Catastrophe, and The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, which became a New York best a New York Times um, bestseller. Professor Plochy's extensive scholarship has garnered him numerous accolades, including the prestigious Pelle Gifford Prize and the Shevchenko National Prize in 2018. His work has been instrumental in shaping our understanding of Eastern Europe in general and its history. We're truly grateful for the opportunity to learn from such an eminent scholar. On a personal note, Professor Plochy's Lost Kingdom and Gates of Europe inspired me to delve into deeper into my own research in Ukraine, of course, very moderate comparison. And I'm very thankful for such an opportunity to discuss your most recent scholarship with us. Join us um, for an enthralling journey throughout the pages of history as we unravel the complex and intriguing relationships between Russia and Ukraine with renowned Harvard professor and expert, Professor Bohi, delighted to host you to our podcast. First of all, thank you so much for such a generous introduction. It's really a pleasure to be on the podcast. And I look forward to a really, really inspiring discussion. Many thanks. Today we will address three themes echoed in your most recent um, book, The Russian Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History. Um, um, throughout the history, there has been a constant struggle between Russia's imperial ambitions and Ukraine's national identity. Could you provide an overview of the origins of this struggle and discuss how it has persisted and evolved into the contemporary context? Uh, there is a number of ways how this war and the road to the war, the all-out uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, was imagined. And uh, one of the narratives was really looking at the prehistory as the history of the NATO expansion and allegedly Russian response to it. 
but uh, by Russian reaction to uh, the admission of uh, Finland and Sweden is about to join NATO as well, uh, one can see that that narrative about uh, Ukraine allegedly ready to join NATO was a false one. It was it was an excuse. Uh, 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 the way how I look at, at the beginning of this war, at the context that brought to it, I look at that as the context, historical context of the disintegration of the empires. So in many ways, the uh, current war is a continuation of the story that started back in 1914, is the start of World War I, uh, and the disintegration of the Russian Empire in 1918-1919, with then being stitched together by the Bolsheviks and falling apart again in 1991. In 91, we were under the impression that we fooled history. One of the largest empires, post-imperial multi-ethnic state, disintegrated without, without a major war and without major warfare. There were uh, clashes and 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 war uh, certainly in in Georgia, in in, in North Caucasus, in Moldova, in in um, uh, Chechnya, but somehow it was overlooked. We considered that that were the bumps to the road of continuing prosperous and peaceful peaceful development of the post-Soviet era. Today, we know that the major clash, a big clash, was just postponed in time. And uh, uh, just one, one indication that uh, this imperial framework, the, the framework of the disintegration of empire, is uh, much more than just um, a tool that historians like me use to understand this war. One can look at the um, part of the explanation of the war that comes from Vladimir Putin, who really uses the Russian imperial language, references to Russians and Ukrainians as being one and the same people, which goes all the way back to the imperial 19th century as the way to provide justification for this war. So not only that this war structurally is the war of the disintegration of the empire, something that we had seen all over the world, but also rhetorically in the way how it is explained, it is very much an imperial war. Mm. In your extensive research on the history of Ukraine and Russia, you've examined the, the complex interplay between Russia's imperial aspirations and Ukraine's quest for self-determination. Can you share specific examples or maybe turning points in history that exemplify this ongoing battle for dominance? Uh, one, uh, one very, very clear example is, of course, comes from the uh, again 19th century with the Russian Empire banning publications on the Ukrainian language, in, in Ukrainian language. Uh, the Valuev uh, circular then, then was followed by the AMS, uh, another AMS edict. Uh, AMS edict was signed by the, by the Russian emperor, uh, Alexander II, which banned uh, publication or import work in Ukrainian language for more than 40 years. So the, 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 most, the most important in many ways uh, stage in the nation building, in the formulation of the national project, culturally, politically, and otherwise. And what the empire was trying to do, it was trying to kill the, the uh, modern national project in its really infancy. 
at the period when it was just created, when it was trying to, to acquire to acquire it wins, again, cultural wins, political wins, social wins, and so on and so forth. This is, this is the, the uh, example of, first of all, fighting the, the Ukrainian national movement. On the other hand, really not admitting the existence of Ukrainians as a separate nation. So that's the echo that you see today in the Russian, in the Russian rhetoric, in Putin's articles, in, in, Putin's, in Putin's pronouncements. Uh, and uh, um, what you what you um, then happens when the Bolshevik Revolution comes uh, to the fore, when uh, these major transformations are taking place, the the Soviet Union is being created uh, as, as as a union, as a pseudo federalist state, as opposed to centralized Russian state. Uh, trying to deal with two uh, with two um, nationalities and national movements, the first one was Ukrainian, the second one was Georgian. So it's the the, the um, Georgian and Ukrainian communists who rebelled against Stalin's model of the creation of so-called autonomization of the Russian Federation, and Lenin got in and decided to make concessions to the nationalities. Those two nationalities were were Ukrainians and the Georgians. Um, and uh, uh, with Ukrainians, it was also a, a major victory in a way that the Bolsheviks recognized them as a separate nationality. They didn't recognize them as a separate nationality before that. But these concessions of the 1920s were replaced with the wave of, uh, first of all, Russocentrism that comes in the 1930s, and then Russification of the 60s and 70s and 80s which led to the situation in which uh, the largest cities in Ukraine became Russophone cities. And good part of the population was, was speaking Russian. So to a degree at the time of the when Soviet Union was approaching its end, the model of the uh, Russification of Ukrainians and in that way, continuation of the policies that were introduced with the Valoyev circular, they almost they almost reached their goal, but came uh, came a major crisis of the late 80s, political crisis, the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and that project failed. But again, I keep going to, to history, returning to history, because what we witness today is very much either continuation of the trends that started almost 200 years ago, or the, the, the interruption of those trends as the result of, of uh, um, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian resilience and Ukrainian uh, ability to defend their state, uh, uh, defend their identity in the current war. Yeah, yeah. The, the development of, of Russia's national identity over the centuries has been shaped by both real and mythical factors. Um, can you explain the intangible aspects of this identity and how they have contributed to Russia's imperial ambitions, especially in relationship in relation to its interactions with Ukraine? Well, uh, one thing that uh, you can you can say about the, the Russian identity is that uh, it experienced enormous difficulties in the articulation as itself as a modern national identity. And those difficulties were uh, closely linked and associated with the empire, except that for Russians, empire was creating a difficult a different type of 
problems and hurdles and, and issues and challenges than for non-dominant groups and, and nationalities. And they talked about them, and those would be Ukrainians and the Bolts and the North Caucasus, and so on and so forth. For the Russians, the, the issue was that uh, their identity was uh, formed very much in the uh, late 18th and, and early 19th century as a national project in close association with the empire. So for Russians uh, and for Russian thinkers, it was really very difficult to imagine Russia as being something separate from the empire. From that point of view, the revolution of 1917 was very important, not only in giving chance and providing an opportunity for non-Russian nations to establish their statehood. And in case of Poland and Finland, those statehood as an independent state would actually continue. But also was important from the Russian perspective that for the first time, with the creation of the Soviet Union, we see that the borders of Russia, in that case, Russian Federation, didn't coincide with the borders of imperial or post-imperial state that Russia kept to control. So for the first time, the Russian Federation acquired its own borders, acquired its own institutions like, like Ukraine, like, like Kazakhstan, and so on and so forth. And that was really historically extremely important development for the Russians. They never had that before. And some form of identity that was uh, Russian but not, not, not imperial started to develop. But it was by the time of 1991, it was significantly still underdeveloped. Russian all, all, quite often meant Soviet, Soviet meant Russian, and not only in the eyes of the uh, reporters, politicians, the general public in the West, but also in, in mind of, of, of Russians themselves. Probably not in the mind of Georgians, not in the mind of many Ukrainians, but certainly in, in the mind of Russians. And this, the, this confluence of empire and nation and rise of really Russian imperial nationalism, that what sets Russia apart from other non-dominant nations of, of, for, of former empire. And for like in, in, in the current form in the way Russia exists, what I argue in my own work is that there is a kind of constant crisis of identity in a way. And Russia can can it even exist without this kind of imperial identity? Because this imperial identity by default requires conquest. So hence, without conquest, there is this logical chain which is somewhat distracted. There is this identity crisis which is constantly there, and the sole and only identity is the imperial identity, which by default requires conquest. So, in the current form, that the Russia that we know now is by default designed for this conquest and imperial identity, isn't it? Um, yes, uh, conquest or maybe reconquista, I, I would say, yeah. really became an important part of, of uh, um, Russian um, state ideology, at, at least. I um, think about it uh, existing on two levels. The one level is that the ra, the, the, the ra, um, this uh, post-imperial tendency of uh, bring together uh, under some form of control the former imperial or Soviet space. Um, so all, all Soviet republics, uh, even the fact that the Balts are today part of the um, NATO and European Union, I don't think that it affected very much traditional thinking in Moscow that this is still a Russian sphere of influence. 
and that that would be true for all all non-Slavic republics. So the, the 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 desire to continue with some form of not just presence, but with some form of dominance, the creation of the so-called Eurasian Union mm-hmm. is a manifestation of that. And then there is an inner circle, and this is reimagining of what Russia is or was in comparison to the to the Soviet experience. For the new government, it's very uncomfortable to live within the borders of the Russian Federation created by Lenin. That's why Putin attacks Lenin all the time, because that was, from their perspective, was a performance. They didn't mean much. Now, they are prepared to adjust to the new uh, near-imperial world in which Russia would be present in certain areas of the former Soviet Union, but not carry the burden of the traditional empire neocolonialism as a cheaper form of control in the space and resources and so on and so forth. But they believe that the uh, East Slavic core of the Soviet Union is Russian and belongs to Russia. From that point of view, you see annexation of the Crimea, you see formal for, formal attempts to annex parts of, of Ukraine and generally mm, cancel, cancel not just Ukrainian identity, but Ukrainian statehood as a whole. Attempts of integration of Belarus, so uh, the, the the readiness to extend the Russian borders at the expense of the of the other East Slavic neighbors, something that you don't see in case of non-Slavic republics of the Soviet Union. So it's basically a return to the imperial understanding of what Russia is, which includes Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians, and then post-imperial attempts to control non-Slavic space. So it's imperial vision of nation and post-imperial vision of the of the of the Soviets of the former Soviet space. Yeah, given that you mentioned that issue, um, many of our listeners have heard a lot from uh, people like Kirill Hovrun and Jose Casanova and others in how sociological theological discourse around this kind of macro sociological categories or ideologies are formed. I wonder if you can provide us with your thoughts and your take about the idea of Russian world and what does it how, how does it relate to the idea of Kiev and Rus? Because many times in the debates we see this fusion of these concepts which mean totally different and are instrumentalized in the Kremlin's discourse. Would you guide us through um slightly or kind of off the topic of your book, but what does exactly Russian world mean? And it does it have a kind of historical validity? Um, like many tropes of the current Russian propaganda, the term uh, Ruski Mir itself comes from the 19th century. Uh, it, it comes from the, from the uh, again, idea still of the one big Russian nation, including great Russians, little Russians, the language of that time, and white Russians or Belarusians. Uh, and it was very much formulated also in in response to what was considered to be a, a Polish and Catholic threat, right? So it's it's very much part of attempt to do something to integrate the uh, partitioned territories of the former Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the conditions where not just religion but also ethnicity, народность, самодержавие, православие, народность, when народность also becomes uh, becomes uh, a major factor, and uh, the the uh, um, uh, instrumental in, instrumental uh, um, beauty for, for the for the lack of a better word of, of the Ruski Mir um, comes with the fact that you can actually can define and redefine it. 
the, the, the borders are quite fluid and they can be defined in different way depending on the circumstances. It can be the ethnic component, which would include East, uh, Eastern uh, Slavs. It can be a, a linguistic component that would uh, put emphasis on the Russian language. And then you, you can go beyond the uh, East Slavic territories. You can go into the Baltics. You can go into Germany, where, where the post-Soviet uh, emigres live. Uh, and then extremely important component is, is certainly uh, religion and orthodox, orthodoxy in particular. Uh, most of this, most of this uh, components from, uh, from language to culture, to ethnicity, to, to religion, uh, in the traditional Russian uh, mythology, they go back to Kiev. Uh, they go back to Kiev. It started already in the 17th century, partially with the help of the of the um, Orthodox clergy from Kiev and Kiev's monastery. They're now right at the center of many controversies continue to be. Uh, the, 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 the Kiev was envisioned not only as the birthplace of the Russian uh, monarchy, dynasty, state, but also of the Russian religion and Russian nationality or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, um, concept of the birthplace of the Russian state and Russian dynasty is already there in the 15th century when uh, Moscow tries to take control of Novgorod. And the argument for why they have to run Novgorod is that th th they come from Kiev. Mm -hmm. So th th this is the Kiev card that is being played already in, in conquest of Novgorod. Uh, what the Caves Monastery monks do in the 17th century, they add the nationality component. So the, the beginning of this idea of the uh, big Russian nation. The, the Russians at that time, Moscovites, don't think yet in national categories. They, they think in categories of dynasty, the category of the of, of uh, religion, but not, 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 not the hmm. category of, of nationality. And uh, uh, then, then, then it... Uh, Comes, it becomes extremely important in the 19th century when Kiev becomes really the center of the struggle against the, the, the West, the Catholicism, the colonization uh, for, for purifications, uh, Slavic and Orthodox purification of the land. The land is populated very much as it's a shtetl land. There is a huge Jewish population apart from Polish and other. And in Kiev, they create the university. They build a monument to Saint Volodymyr. Uh, they build a monument to uh, Khmelnytsky as, as a unifier, alleged unifier of Russia and Ukraine. All of these monuments that you see now come, coming from the 19th century in the downtown Kiev, they had to be okay, rethought by now and repurposed. But the original idea, that's, that's the Western forepost of the empire which is in the process of nationalization, reimagining itself not just as Romanov Empire, but as Russian ethnically, religiously Russian Empire. And Kiev becomes again the, 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 the battleground for that. The rise of the, the uh, Russian nationalism in the Russian Empire at the beginning of the 20th century, again, comes from this the same very same territories. The, largest union of the of the um, uh, largest um, department of the union of the Russian people, this Russian nationalist organization, comes from uh, from Volhynia, 
right? That's that's where the, 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 the dividing line is between the Orthodoxy and Catholicism, between the East Slavs and the Poles, and so on and so forth. So uh, the the uh, Kiev symbolically uh, has been a very important part of Russian identity since uh, since uh, uh, late fifteenth century, in many ways, from dynasty to religion to nationality, and then you end up after nineteen ninety one in in a situation where. Uh, uh, Kiev, which is allegedly the birthplace of Russia, happens to be the capital of the neighboring state. And you, you play all sorts of games. You build the monument to St. Vladimir. In the capital of Moscow, you, you start war. Uh, you, you, you try to liberate the, the, the true Russians from the nationalists and so on and so forth. And uh, a big part of that of that story is really uh, inability to 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 deal in a critical way with the mythology that has not just decades but centuries of of history behind it. Yeah, well, it, it brings me to my next question. Throughout your research on his historical relationships between Russia and Ukraine, you have likely encountered various misconceptions or overlooked aspects of their complex dynamic. Can you discuss some of these misconceptions and explain why it is essential to challenge them in order to understand or to better understand the historical context and present-day implications? Um, I would uh, I would uh, talk about about uh, again ingrained uh, ingrained uh, mythologies that are based on, on those uh, misperceptions. And uh, very often uh, misuse and abuse of history, quite conscious that 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 had been undertaken for the for very for very practical reasons. And uh, the most uh, the most uh, maybe one that that comes to 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 my mind at this point is closely linked to the justification for the current war. Uh, when. Um, Vladimir Putin goes there and uh, says that uh, Ukraine really doesn't have the right to exist because it's part of Russia, but also because it was created by the Bolsheviks. So it's a, it's a different way of um, delegitimizing the project, not only in, in imperial terms that, okay, it was part of the Russian Empire, it was part of Russia, it was gift to, to whoever, to, to, to the Ukrainian Republic, then the other argument is this: that it is a Bolshevik creation, and that's that's a classic example of uh, getting on purpose everything wrong, starting with chronology, right? So that 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 is denial of the existence of the and effectiveness of the Ukrainian project before 1917. That's a denial of the fact that Ukrainian statehood was created in 19. 17 by Central Rada and the declaration of the uh, creation of the state came as a response to the October coup, October revolution of 1917, not as a result of that. That is a denying of the fact that the first war that uh, Lenin's Russia starts in January of 1918 was the war on, on, on Ukraine and takeover of Kiev in January of 1917. And that's the beginning of the huge violence of the so-called civil war and revolutionary wars. So all of these things that I just mentioned are completely removed 
forgotten and, and dismissed. And then to the fore comes the year 1922, when Lenin comes out of nowhere and allegedly creates like, like a god on the sixth or third day of the creation, uh, creates those nations. And uh, again, it's, it's uh, the, the, that sort of uh, um, misuse of history is not something particularly new. That was really the critique of Bolsheviks, of Lenin, of Trotsky by the white generals like Dimikin and others by the Russian emigres uh, during the interwar period. So um, uh, that's that, that just one of those examples. Again, not, not doing, I, I dealt already enough with Kevin Rus and with early modern period. This is this is example that comes from the 20th century, um, is, is, had been presented recently in the context of the justification of the war. And like other, like other this uh, um, getting history wrong uh, lines has has already some uh, some um, uh, prehistory, and because of that has also some traction because it's not for the first time that people hear that that sort of uh, historical exercises. Yeah, I, I know historians as well as maybe sociologists. We don't like to examine the process as we as it goes and definitely one of the outcomes that we need we need an outcome to analyze in a way right so and maybe the next question will not be so much scholarly it's more like intuitive in a, in a sense um how um did the, the war changed ukrainian national identity and in what directions so far as of, of uh, our episode is going to be released in may so as of now um what, what's your uh, scholarly feel, hunch feeling, to what direction the Ukrainian national identity is going? Um, well, for answering this question, uh, like answering almost every other question about the war, uh, it's extremely important to uh, either understand or remind ourselves that the war didn't start in 2022. The war started in 2014 with the Russian annexation of the Crimea, the start of the war in Eastern uh, Ukraine, in Donbass area. And I'm saying that not just for the sake of, of, of saying that, okay, well, let, let's keep chronology right, but because that chronology is very important for, for understanding of what has been happening with the Ukrainian uh, self-identification, nation, sense of unity, attachment to the state, uh, the, the 2014 actually jump-started many of these processes that really transformed Ukraine dramatically between 2014 and 2022 into a much more unified state, the state that was much more conscious of its own identity, much closer society got to the state and state discovered support in the society, and in that sense, what came as a surprise in 2022 that Ukraine resisted and resisted so effectively was the outcome of the previous eight years of the war, or more, more, more importantly, the impact that it had on the Ukrainian society. And then these processes that I just mentioned in terms of uh, uh, more cohesion within the state, much more value put on the, on the Ukrainian identity, more value on Ukrainian culture, um, rediscovering a state as an instrument of the society, that came to the fore and really there was further, further very significant pro progress in all these directions 
in the course of the 2022. But none of them started in February of 2022. Uh, the, 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 major, the major trigger um, was 2014. And I recently reviewed for um, Washington Post, a uh, very good book by uh, Olga Onuk and Henry Hale, The Zelensky Effect, where um, they, their argument is that Zelensky phenomenon is basically top of the iceberg. It's manifestation of this new sense of the civic identity that that uh, um, that uh, developed in Ukraine and it is in the book but I really really stress that in, in my in my review that uh, uh, 2014 is really a very important point in 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 terms of the transformation of the society but also in the transformation of now the, the main spokesperson for that society Volodymyr Zelensky who before 2014 really was, was not taking any political position whatsoever, who, who was better known in Russia than he was known in Ukraine. And it is in 2014 that actually his, his jokes also go political and it's the issue of the Crimea, it's the issue of war, it's the issue of Russia. So, but again, to a degree that Zelensky's stand in 2022 reflected the the stand and 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 the the state of mind of the of the Ukrainian society, to the same degree, his start of his change in 2014 reflects the, the start of the changes in the Ukrainian society. As we are reaching the end of our interview, I have uh, two more questions to, to before we finish. Considering the uh, the deep historical roots of the struggle between Russia's imperial ambition and Ukraine's national identity. What do you think um, external actors such as the European Union or United States can or should uh, play in navigating these complex relationships and promoting stability in the region? Well, uh, well, most of us of our interview was was about history and identity, and uh, I will start answering the, this latest question also looking at that from from the from the same perspective. Um, the collective West. Europe in particular, but United States as well, are extremely important for the uh, for formulation of the Ukrainian national identity in the course of the 19th and 20th century. That was the other pole, the the the, the counter pole. So to so to speak to the to the Russian Empire, to the Moscow as a political, cultural, and so on and so forth institution. That was a that, that was a, a beacon on which Ukrainian national project was oriented itself. Um, you start with uh, um, Kostomarov's first formulation of the modern national project in the 1840s. It's already envisioning some kind of a Slavic federation, which also includes Western Slavs. You look then at Drahomanov in the 19th century. It's a European Mazzini type of federation with inclusion of Europe. You look at the national communists, at, at people like Mikola Khrylovy, and their argument is we should orient ourselves on, on cultural Europe and Paris and so on and so forth. And in that sense, sometimes before I heard this, this question, okay, what, what, what do Ukrainians think they're doing? Don't they understand in what deep trouble the European Union is, what sort of issues are there, there is no unity and so on and so forth. And my answer was back then and continues to be today, 
Yeah, what actually happens in real life is important, but it's really overshadowed by the by the this importance, historical and cultural importance of Western Europe as the way to articulate in itself as a nation, as a project, as a culture different from Russian one. And that's that, that, that didn't change. The 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 support that very few expected that would come from the West today, I think reinforces this uh, the, 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 this long-term tradition in the Ukrainian thinking. It's not like the relations are unproblematic and so on and so forth. And Ukrainians uh, legitimately ask for, for, for more help and more support. But in general, I think that that, that the, 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 the latest developments really go, go in that direction. And in terms of uh, what 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 uh, Europe or the United States uh, can do more, uh, they they the most important thing that they can do they uh, can stay the course because most of the questions that people in Ukraine ask today is not how long we can last. This is not like this question people don't ask. But the most uh, most uh, probably urgent question is how long the, the West and Western support can last. Right? So that that's at the top of the, of the concerns. Um, and uh, if if, if uh, the the answer is resounding, we'll stay with Ukraine as long as it takes, which was stated by 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 some current leaders. If, if that continues from one election to another. The West is democracy, right? Uh, which comes with pluses, which comes also with, with a lot of question marks. So one of the question marks, okay, if that policy would continue with the new round of elections in the European countries or in the United States, and if the answer is is yes, that's that the most reassuring answer that the Western allies of Ukraine can give Ukraine. And the last question will be uh, as we finish our interview. What are the lessons learned from history that can um, an informed European learn from this war? Um, I was shocked uh, even even before this war, but especially now with the level to and, and degree to which the uh, history of the last ten years, let's say, rhymes with the history of Europe in the nineteen thirties from the Great Depression to Great Recession, to the rise of, of uh, uh, populist po politicians, to, to the rise of xenophobia and nationalism, to the, to the military aggression, annexation of the territories, and so on and so forth. The closest parallel that we can find to developments of the last 10 years would be 1930s. And uh, as a historian, I was under wrong impression, illusion and delusion, that uh, we as a society learn from, from the past, learn from the mistakes. And what I, what I discovered that there was very little learning done by the societies as a whole from the, from the history of the 1930s. And uh, um, that's that's uh, that's a reminder for us as we move forward that history matters, and that um, not learning from history is is basically maybe one of the most dangerous things that we can do as we move forward.
Fantastic. As we conclude this captivating episode of Religion Praxis, we would like to express our deepest gratitude to Professor Serhi Blohi for sharing his exceptional expertise and insights into the intricate relationships between history, identity, nationalism, focus on, on Ukraine-Russia conflict, the historical context, and nuanced understanding he has provided will undoubtedly serve as a valuable resource for all those seeking to comprehend the origins and implications of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey, and we look forward to bringing you more engaging conversations with leading experts on the future episodes of Religion and Praxis. Until then, take care and stay curious. Mm-hmm.